From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we get into today's topic, which is going to be about the top 50 lists of wine, beer, and spirits that that we put out this year, a word from our sponsor. Tequila Ocho is the world's first single estate tequila. I did make that tequila Negroni, by the way, with it, and it was dope. Yep. Growing and harvesting only the very ripest agaves from their family-owned fields in the highlands of Jalisco. One field harvested for each of their annual vintages. Where some take shortcuts, Ocho is made in the old-fashioned way and takes care to ensure maximum agave flavor in your glass. They truly do. Every expression is certified 100% additive-free, underlying the purity and nobility of this magical tequila. And it is magical, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you, I'm not just saying this because they are a sponsor of this podcast. That liquid is dope. I'm it just, really is. It is really good. So you should go out and get it. Uh, so besides me having that this week, which I've now already brought up as like something I drank this week, uh, Zach, what, what else have you been, what else have you been imbibing on? Uh, gosh, you know, it's funny. Uh, we, so we, those of you, uh, who, uh, who are, well, I guess everyone knows it's Hanukkah or at least has been as we're recording this, we're getting, uh, it'll be the last night tonight. Um, and I have been not making a ton of the traditional Hanukkah foods, uh, except for tonight, we're having a, a little, uh, more traditional with latkes and all that. But, um, but the one thing that I have been, um, doing a lot of is, uh, sort of thinking about like, I guess this is sad, but interesting is, uh, like a lot of potatoes and sour cream. It's just like the, <laughs> Not necessarily latkes, but like it has been one of the like combinations that I've always loved. I mean, a baked potato with sour cream has always been one of my favorite foods. Uh, but it's like a weirdly interesting thing to have with wine. Um, and I've just found Adam will laugh at me for this, uh, but it's like in trying a lot of different wines with that combination of flavors. In the end, I just keep coming back to to Chardonnay and in particular like white Burgundy as being the the thing that just works best with that. And there's something about the earthiness uh, that you get out of a, a good white Burgundy that goes with uh, the potatoes, the creaminess from the sort of lees contact and and barrel aging that you get out of those that works with the sour cream. Um, and so I've been drinking a lot of white Burgundy, which bougie as hell i know but uh that's how i roll i mean again my my philosophy this year has been fuck it i'm just drinking it i mean i've got the <laughs> wine sitting around and if i don't drink it now then like you know i sadly to say i don't know if i'll get the chance to drink it so i'm gonna drink it now how about you so i've been drinking a, a few things um so obviously yes made some latkes and i i think that the best pairing there is sparkling wine um I top it with uh, some delicious uh, smoked salmon from Russ and Daughters. Oh, shout nice. out to the Kings. Shout out to the Queens. Um, they're, they are the best, I think, uh, smoked fish purveyors in the country. Um, just saying, you know, if you get to New York, come get some Russ and Daughters. Or you can get them on Gold Belly, actually. Um, that's not an ad. Just a tr- very strong endorsement. And uh, I will agree that <laughs> Russ and Daughters is fucking awesome. Just the best. Yeah, uh, it really is amazing. And so uh, so where I moved to, and this is now a total tangent, but um, when, cool. I, when I lived in the East Village, I was near the original location. And, you know, when we moved to Brooklyn, uh, to Fort Greene, Naomi and I were like, oh, man, like we're not going to be near Russ and Daughters. I mean, to be fair, let's be clear. My wife doesn't eat anything that's living formerly living so she doesn't eat fish um so she doesn't eat smoked salmon but she liked the bagels and the, and the schmears and things like that and it was cool to be able to take people from out of town there and then we realized that we are now only a 10 minute walk from their factory <laughs> which, <laughs> which is actually even better so that it's in the brooklyn navy yard so i can walk there and there's never a line because almost no one seems to know about it which is crazy uh and so you can walk right in they have a full counter just like they do in the original nice. store 
And so I can get, you know, and, and the bagels are coming right out of the oven there and like all the yeah. fish is right there. It's really cool. So, um, so I, I liked, I had a, a, some, some really nice, I actually had champagne tattinger with that, which, ah, yep. you know, which was really tasty um, and a, a really nice pairing, a little rosé champagne tattinger or nice. tattinger, however you want to say <laughs> it, but I think it was tattinger. Yeah. And, and yeah, so so that was good. And then you know, I've just been kind of playing around. It's it feels like the the holidays are like so close, and and also here that it feels like I've been like we've been in a more of a festive mood in the evenings, and like being like again, like yeah, like fuck it, like let's just open it. Um, so I also had you know a really nice um, Barolo, you know, over the weekend, and then this week tonight I plan to open um some some fun stuff and and make like a a warming you know lentil soup because it just snowed really heavily. And you know, just playing around with a bunch of different stuff. It's, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and I think a lot of stuff I've actually been drinking has been stuff that that wound up on our top fifty list this year because it reminded me how much I loved it this year. And now I'm like, well, I got to go back to this before the year's over and remember how delicious it all was. So with that in mind, like, let's get into it and talk about some of this yeah. stuff. I mean, I thought you know one of the first things we should we should hit on is um, obviously the wine list, right? And yeah, and, and what was there. And I think there's there's some really interesting stories with this list this year. Um, you know, the first being obviously that this was, you know, our our statement really that like Greek wines are something that people should pay attention to. Um, uh-huh. And that especially Xenomavro, we just find to be, you know, one of the the most exciting grapes that's out there right now um, and wines made from it that are still really affordable um, and just absolutely delicious. And so, you know, when it, it came to trying to figure out what the best pick was, this, this Alpha Estate, you know, single block uh, reserved, you know, Mavro for us was just, you know, head and shoulders above almost anything else we had tasted this year. And then when you look at the price of, you know, an average price of $37, it just is something that everyone needs to go out and try to grab. Um, you know, it is one of the more well-distributed Greek wines in the U.S. right now. Um, and you know, we, we we had this big debate, and I'm, I'm I'm curious what you think about this, Zach. Um, we had this debate when we talked about this wine, which is that like we feel like it's unfair. So I'm tr- I'm really avoiding. I think maybe people can tell saying this is like the Greek Barolo or something, or the Greek, you know, because it's not fair, right? This is you know Mavro. This is what this is is what I think is the best red coming out of Greece, in my opinion, yeah. right? I think Zeno Mavro is the most, you know, beautiful, ageable red grape in Greece. Ayer Yitiko stands, get Adam. Yeah, come get me. Uh <laughs> look, no, 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 like, no disrespect to those to those wines. Like I love, I love Ayutikos. And I think that there's again some producers in the in and around Nemea that are making amazing wines. But for me and like my palate and I think what I've tended to enjoy Zeno Mavro is amazing. I think for, for what the majority of consumers, right. It's why burgundy prices are crazy. It's why Barolo's, I think Zeno Mavro is going to get there. Maybe. Yeah. But I don't want to say to you listening, like it's the next burgundy or Barolo or drink it if you like, although I'm kind of saying it right. But, <laughs> but <laughs> well, to it me, is, it's a, just such an amazing, this, this wine is just like stupid. Yeah. Good. And to me, I think so. So to the question you asked initially, I actually find that, while I get the sentiment behind being like, we don't want to call it the Barolo or the Nebbiolo of Greece. We want to call it its own thing. The honest truth is that our, that almost everyone in the world of wine, their frame of reference is going to start with things that they're familiar with. And most people, if you haven't been to Greece or you're not, you know, kind of interested in trying Greek wine, Zeno Mavro is probably not something you've tasted. You certainly haven't tasted much of it. You don't probably have a frame of reference for it. But if you're a, a red wine drinker, there's a better than, 
you know, there's a decent chance that you're at least somewhat familiar with Nebbiolo, principally through Barolo and Barbaresco, possibly through some other appellations. And and there is some real similarity. And I actually thought it was interesting to me because, I mean, the Alpha State example is the most striking one. But on this list, you know, there's a few different wines that I think kind of fall into this general red wine category that I would describe as the sort of not super deep in color, more red fruited than black fruited in terms of flavor, mm-hmm. but with high acidity and high uh, tannin or relatively high tannin. And really, it, this does not particularly include uh, Pinot Noir, although Pinot Noir gets lumped in here sometimes because it has some of the other characteristics. But I even think about, you know, the 49th wine on your list here, which is a Blaufrankisch, a variety that I'm personally very fond of mm-hmm. from Austria. And and there's, you know, uh, so Blaufrankisch, Zeno Mavro, uh, Norella Mascalese from Sicily. Um, I would argue uh, Cozzafali, which is from Crete in Greece as well. Um, you know, there's some others that you could throw in here that, that sort of nicely align in some way or some other ways um, with uh, what people expect from Nebbiolo. But each offer their own unique twist. And to me, the thing that is great about Zeno Mavro and that makes it so delightful and so enjoyable is that when you get it from um, from good producers in Nausa, you're getting it from relatively high elevations, you know, sort of foothills or even into the mountains. And it has a distinctly sort of mountainous quality to it. The the aromatics are, you know, really tart berry fruit, um, like red berries that you might find um, in the mountains. There's almost a florality, uh, the kind of wildflower note. And most of all, to me, a sort of um, like alpine forest, sort of piney note, not resin the way you would expect with uh, Retsina, the big barrier to anyone's enjoying Greek wine. Because when I tell people to try Greek wine, the first thing they say is, well, you know, I tried Greek wine once and it tasted like pine salt. And it's like, okay, well, you tried Ritzina, which is a, a sort of, um, you know, a sort of uh, adulterated wine of a sort. Uh, this is very different, but it does have a little bit of that piney quality that I really find uh, very, very appealing. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, uh, this is a, Xenomavro has been something that I've started to add to my own personal collection a little bit. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, it's actually pretty hard to find many yeah, examples, um, you know, uh, Alpha Omega that you mentioned, or sorry, Alpha Estate, Alpha Omega is something very different. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Kiryani is another producer that I see pretty widely distributed. But there's a, I, you know, I was looking for, I, I'm teaching a class on Greek wine uh, in uh, January, or sorry, in February. And uh, I've been looking for what's available here in the Seattle area. And, you know, it's actually like kind of limited, unfortunately. So uh, importers, distributors, you know, up your game. Look at this list. The people want Greek wine. I mean, look, I think the, the, the problem is, right, there's really, there's one main importer of greek wine diamond wine imports they have they have actually both kiriani and alpha um and they're an incredible importer i think you know i i've they they were super awesome in getting like rushing us a bottle of this uh you know at the last minute when we basically let them know because they had submitted samples earlier in the year that we we felt like it had done well enough that it should be considered for the list um so you know they were they were super good about that but yeah i mean there there can be more than them obviously and there should be and there should be another you know more of this wine coming in because when i've been to greece the the last few times i've been blown away by some of these producers that i've gotten to try these wines by and you just can't you know you can't find them here you're you're lucky if you find them a lot of different places um and it's time to get excited about the region for sure the other thing i think that was you know pretty interesting about this list and again probably talks to where where people's palates are right now especially probably on this tastings team is that three wines in the top 10 were from Sicily. Um, you know, another place that's become pretty exciting when it comes to, you know, wines, both on the white and the red side. Um, and, and another place that, you know, really is still, I feel pretty undervalued and, and 
you know, a place where you can find really delicious reds, you know, in the same way that you have psalms that are like, oh my gosh, you know, if you, if you find a wine list, look for wines from Beaujolais because those wines are going to be underpriced, which really isn't true anymore, but yeah. was, you know, <laughs> I, I think there are still really, you know, great prices for wines from Sicily. Um, and the, the wines are always really just absolutely delicious. You know, a lot of them have really beautiful high acidity, which is something that I've realized is, is very important to me um, when it comes to the wines that I, that I love. Um, and, and yeah, it was just really shocking to us that when, when this kind of came together and we were talking as, you know, this team, holy shit, do we have three wines on this list in the top 10 that are all from Sicily? Yes, we do. So, you know, m- must mean that they're do- the-, the island as a whole is doing something right. And I think what's cool about that is you have examples on the list, both of the sort of psalm geeky, sort of trendy part of Sicily, i.e. Yep. Mount Etna, uh, both an Etna Rosso made from Norella Mascalese principally and an Etna Bianco made from Caracante, but also a wine uh, made from Frappato from uh, kind of in the middle part of the island. And it's important to note here that Sicily is big. It's yeah. a big place and it has actually a really diverse wine scene. Um, you know, obviously Etna again, like I said, gets the sort of the the love of the Psalms, including me for sure. Um, and because Norella Mascalese is such an interesting variety, in particular on the red side, and there's such a you know, a, a piece of um of the the winemaking story and grape growing story on on Etna is that there are all these very different growing conditions depending on where on the mountain you are, um, you know whether your you know what your exposure is to the ocean or to the sea, um, you know what the when the lava flowed over that part of the mountain slope and how old the soils are and things like that are all really important. But there's also this incredible wealth of winemaking and, and experience and interesting varieties off of Etna. And um, that to me has been something that's been cool to see as like Etna is awesome and, and is super cool to focus on. But I was really glad to see a wine um, that wasn't from a, a wine from um, another part of Sicily on here too. And I will give my big like I this is my little like spiel on it on Sicily. Please people, please people go out and drink some Marsala. Like I know sweet wines, fortified <laughs> wines, no one wants to drink them. If you think, though, that like, oh, Marsala is just for cooking or for making chicken Marsala or whatever, and you can certainly do that with it. It's delicious. But like if you like anything in the fortified category, Madeira, Sherry, even Port, there is a Marsala style out there for you, and they are stupid cheap and stupid good. Yeah, very true. So any other, so you know, before we move on, Zach, because I know I don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about the, the, the top 50 wine list. Was there anything, though, on the list as well that caught your eye? I think the only other thing that I wanted to talk about really quickly was I also loved on this list that there are a really interesting mix of white varieties uh, sort of called out here. I mean, you know me, you all listening know me. I love white wine. Uh, it's really my heart in a lot of ways. But there's Semillon, there's Friulano, there's Grunewaldliner, there's you know just an interesting wealth of white varieties. And yeah, there's Sauvignon Blanc, there's Chardonnay on here too, of course. But like, it is really refreshing to me to see a top list that isn't just like, here are the 18 best you know, Chardonnays and Sauvignon Blancs. And yeah, I will throw a Riesling or two in there because, you know, someone expects it. Like, it is a really diverse set of white wines on here. And and I love that. And I think that's something to commend you guys for because uh, it's important when looking at white wine that we not just focus on, you know, two, three, four varieties. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, Zach. <laughs> Yeah. I'm um, sure I'm sure that was all Tim. It had nothing to do with it. But. Yeah, that was all Tim. No, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, you know, we all share your passion for white wines. We really, you know, love them. And I think, you know, there is a there is something to to, 
you know, all of us, I think, maybe coming into wine in, in various different ways. Tim through the chef route, you know, Keith through Italian wine, me through, you know, really, you know, music and things like that. So we didn't come through a traditional path where you also were taught at the very beginning that like the best whites are Chardonnays and Rieslings. And so I feel like, yes, while we appreciate those, we also are able to, you know, love other whites from other places that may not get as much as many accolades, but absolutely should. Um, and, you know, are extremely interesting in their own, you know, unique ways. So, yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing, obviously, that you probably saw that I was waiting for you to say that you didn't was that a number two wine was from Virginia, but that's cool. Um, uh, we talk about wine. Virginia wine on this podcast way too much already. I, I wasn't know. It is, it is, it is pretty dope, though, man. Like, you got to get your I'm hands sure. on it. I'm sure. You got to get your hands on it. But, yeah, so let's let's move on. Let's let's talk spirits. Um, Absolutely. So this was the first year we ever did the, the top 50 spirits list. We're going to yes. obviously keep doing it um, moving forward. And I have to tell you, this was the hardest list to create out of the three. Oh, I, I think it's insane that you guys did this. I'm glad you did. But but when you told me that they were you guys were doing a top 50 spirits list, I was just like, man, wine is hard enough. Yeah. But spirits, whoa. This was really hard. And it was hard for a lot of different reasons. I think the main reason, right, is like, I don't know about you, but for me, when I taste really great wine, there's something that I just, I know that it's great. Whether I know it's going to sit at 50 or it's going to sit at one, there is a way that we can sort of figure that out in our brains Spirits is really hard to figure out like what is better than what, especially when you're dealing with different spirits, right? So especially when we're looking at a whiskey and then we're saying, okay, but like, is this better than this gin or is this better than this tequila? And, and so, yeah, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, I think we, you know, we obviously, we did a socially distanced tasting on the roof uh, of all these spirits that we had tasted throughout the year. We tasted them again, which also was weird. It's very odd spitting spirits. Uh, yes. You wind up still kind of feeling buzzed. Oh, of um, course. <laughs> and then, you know, and then we had to go and we had a, like, we debated, we, had a, we went home, we're on Zoom, we debated for longer than the next day, we kept debating. I mean, it took a really long time to figure this out. Also, because everyone's all over the place. And I feel like, for whatever reason, because it's spirits, price and money just comes into it in a very different way, you know? And so it, it, there were some of these, these spirits that were incredible, but are very hard to find you know, highly allocated and also crazy expensive. And you'll probably never pay market price for them that then started, you know, started weighing on where they should actually fall on the list. Um, we always knew obviously that a Brown spirit would be number one. I mean, I feel like it's just like, that is, that it, that's where we are right in, in just the world of spirits that it's, it's a whiskey's going to be up there. You know, whiskey seemed to do better than anything else. And that was still the case here. Um, but I was proud of us that we really did feel very strongly that a tequila should be number two. Um, you know, I think what we've seen in, the world of spirits right now and, and just how dominant tequila is be becoming and how many people are entering the category and, you know, how many now tequilas are coming to the market that are less manipulated, you know, and, you know, really, truly speaking of a place, I think tequila is going to be very, continue to evolve as, as a collector spirit um, for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there definitely are surprises, some surprises there. I'm curious what your impressions were when you saw this list. Well, I mean, I think I want to add one other note of potential complexity, which I'm sure you considered, but probably just didn't feel like mentioning. But to me, as a part of this, too, is like with wine, you can be pretty confident that when you're putting together a list or beer, um, as is the case also, that the, that the way someone is going to consume that liquid is they're going to open the bottle or can either drink directly from it or pour it into a glass and drink it. And with spirits, especially some of these, like, are you talking about the best gin for a gin and tonic? 
the best gin for a Manhattan or a martini, the best gin for a Negroni. I mean, it's very difficult. And again, I I, I am glad that, that the Vine Pair team did this. I think it's a kind of a crazy notion <laughs> again, but it's like, but but again, it's like, you know, that's hard to quantify. And so in some ways I get why some of the high-end brown spirits are easier to do because really probably people are drinking those neat or exactly. on the rocks. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're making... I mean, I would even say it's unlikely that someone's making much in the way of a cocktail, maybe a Manhattan or something, if you really love that. But I think a lot of these are, um, you know, meant to be enjoyed that way. To me, I think the the two things that that stood out to me um, at the top of the list, one of them is um, I love because I have often felt that there are like an underappreciated uh, distillery is that Evan Williams is on here relatively high up. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. I can't talk about it. <laughs> Like this was my this was I I there are a few things when with, with restaurant bar programs that I felt strongly about to the point of like I think this is how we should do it but Evan Williams being the well bourbon wherever I worked was a big piece of it like it just consistently delivers it's affordable it works really well as a as a uh, cocktail partner and it's like just at a like slightly higher ABV level than like the minimum for bourbon it's I think forty three something like that and so in cocktails in particular. It doesn't like the downside to a lot of other sort of similarly priced, well applicable bourbons were that they like they just really kind of fell flat in cocktails because you know they're just a little bit lower proof. And Evan Williams, I always felt like really stood up nicely in cocktails. And granted, for a lot of cocktails that we were making, you know, well bourbon was not the call. You know, it's usually going to be something else. But but there are plenty that are, and especially if your well bur- your well drink is a well you know old fashioned or something like that, like a lot of people want. Uh, I, I just love it. And I, I have not tried the 2012 single barrel, but I'm just really glad to see Evan Williams on here. So let's let's be clear, right? Evan Williams, everyone basically said when we tasted that this bourbon for the for the entire tastings team was a bourbon they returned to throughout the pandemic, right? You know, it is 30 bucks. This is a single barrel. The amount of shit that is romanticized by bourbon geeks that this whiskey has for the price is stupid. And we actually feel across the board that heaven Hill is the most underrated whiskey distillery, bourbon distillery in America that, you know, for as much attention as Sazerac gets, which they deserve a lot of that attention, but a lot of it also comes from the fact that they do produce Pappy. Let's be clear. It, overshadow that attention overshadows a lot of other distilleries that are producing liquid that is just as good if not better but cannot for some for you know for that reason connect itself back to pappy so like the number one whiskey on this list old fitzgerald is you know heaven hills weeded bourbon that is two hundred dollars not a few thousand yeah you know and it is on par with pappy it is a you know they're, they release two basically releases a year. They release a spring and a um, fall bottling of Old Fitz. It's always anywhere from 14 to 16 years old. Like the bourbon is absolutely gorgeous. It basically, you know, has it has a very similar mash build to Pappy. We think it's a bourbon that probably will become very collectible very soon. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, um, Evan Williams, there's, you know, Elijah Craig, like a lot of the bourbons that this place produces are just all incredibly solid. And I do agree with you, Zach, that it was a lot easier to look at the brown spirits because for the most part, you know that people are going to consume them straight. It is also what, to be fair, made a lot of the tequila easier because yeah. especially when you start playing in the world of Reposado, but even in Blanco nowadays, people are drinking it straight. It was much harder when thinking about the gins 
and the rums because the gins and the rums were very much like, okay, well, so why are we saying this is so good? It's just so good because it would make an amazing daiquiri, right? If it would make him like, so is that, does that make it the best white rum just because it's probably the best white rum in the world for a, a daiquiri? We, we decided that, yes, that was the case that like, we think yeah. the, like, <laughs> the white rum was created for the daiquiri base or the daiquiri is created for the white rum. You know what I mean? And, and that was how we wanted to go. But yeah, and other things like there was a there was a huge oh there was a massive debate on the roof. Um, Tim's gonna kill me for this, but like of people talking about gin and gin and tonics, and then gin and martinis. And you know, Tim not a gin and tonic fan, which I think is very interesting because he's a Brit. Uh, but some of some other people on the tasting seemed like gin and tonics, and were like talking about these gins as being well, this gin would be amazing, and I would love it in a gin and tonic. And Tim, be like, that's bollocks. Like this, <laughs> this, you know, that that this gin is not as good as a gin I would use for my martinis. Because I mean, everyone who's ever listened to him on this podcast knows that he's a massive martini fan. Um, yeah. So that was hard, right? Like exactly what you're talking about happened. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it was, it was difficult. It was really difficult to figure out where everything should lie. I will say, you know, it's not surprising, obviously that a majority of the list is Brown, as we've said before, but there are some standouts here, like Tanqueray number 10. I mean, this gin is really beautiful. It has basically everything a traditional gin drinker would want, but it also has all these components of what like is really trendy right now in gin. Um, and so it's, it's like that perfect liquid for, people who want to see what like why gin is basically having this massive renaissance like it's have this gin and you'll understand why um and it's perfect in a martini but it's also delicious in in you know gin tonics is great in negroni it's just it's a great liquid and you can find it everywhere um we did have this debate you know zach with with things like monkey 47 right so it's an amazing gin but it's very expensive you know it's it's a very expensive gin and so you know where does that go and the other thing i think about gin now i'm just on the gin train uh that was interesting was to see you know to realize that a lot of the gins we liked this year were all coming out of japan and Mm -hmm. it's interesting that japan's kind of establishing itself as a as a location for producing you know not just amazing whiskeys which is what has become known for over you know the last few decades but now also becoming really well known as a country that produces really amazing gins and gins that are very uniquely japanese which i think is interesting right they're not just the Japanese whiskeys are kind of like, you know, they were going to say, we're going to go out to make scotch, but better. And, and these gins are really like, no, no, no. These are all their own thing, which I think is really cool. Well, and I think it's it's a, a sign and, and an exciting thing. And I look forward to this expanding even further because one thing that's very true is like as gin has more of a renaissance globally, um, more and more places around the world here in the U.S., in, in Europe, in Asia and in other parts of the world. Or I think really like, well, you know what, like gin more than almost any other spirit is such an incredible platform for for expression of, of, of place because you can infuse a gin with so many different potential, uh, you know, uh, botanicals, herbs, um, you know, barks, fruits, etc. And produce something that still kind of is recognizably gin, but is also of a place in a way that, you know, it's harder to do that with other spirits, especially spirits that are then aged in barrel where the barrel character is going to take over to some extent. And I just, I think it's exciting. And I think it, you know, it's one of the great things about this list I was thinking about uh, too, is like the great thing about, um, you know, looking and potentially shopping off of this list, as opposed to the wine list is, you know, you can come back to these things over and over again, right? You can come back to the bottle of whiskey of, of tequila, of gin, of rum, et cetera. And you can compare and contrast side by side. You can say, Hey, I want to get a couple of these gins and you might feel 
you know, that one is better for a gin and tonic, one's better for a martini, one's better for a Negroni. And that's all super valid. And and I think that's what's cool about, you know, looking at this list and maybe makes the price point a little bit easier to swallow, even if it's higher, you know, per bottle cost than the wine list, for sure. It's still, you know, you can you can sort of revisit these in a way that a wine, you know, you got a day or two with it at, at best, uh, you know, whatever. Get at me, Corvin people, if you really believe. I mean, of course. Well, so Zach, you know, we, we've drawn on about, about these lists and I realized we're kind of running out of time and I don't think we're going to get to the beer list this time, but you know, maybe that's something we talk about with, we bring Kat on in early 2021 and talk about the list because that list actually just published today. So yeah. no rush. Uh, but I would encourage you if you, you know, have enjoyed this podcast, go out and, and look at these two lists, the, the spirits and the, and the wine. Um, we are very much, uh, proud of, of both and I, I'd encourage you to buy some of the liquids and, and let us know what you think you know tell us do you think that where where certain things sit on the list you agree with you disagree with you know hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and um, yeah we, we would just love to hear your thoughts and Zach I'll get back with you next week sounds great thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast if you enjoy listening to us every week please leave us a review or rating on iTunes Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcast it really helps everyone else discover the show now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Lewinsky. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.